0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: How's that? A little soft. A little more. Okay. See how that works. That good. good morning. need a new one? Okay. Um, it's nice to be back here on a Sunday morning. It's been a while since I've been here. It's always great to see the uh, old friends and new faces also. Um, I wanted to talk about the practice in the context of what we call the eight vicissitudes, or the eight worldly winds, um, these are, they're called the eight worldly wins because they're the things that tend to toss us around. No matter how carefully we plan our lives or uh, we work hard at what we want, some these things just show up. You know, the things that we don't want, the things we want happen, uh, but they all show up. And the eight of them uh, are broken up into pairs, four that we like and four that we don't like. So, and I'm going to talk a little bit about each of them. You know, the first one is, uh, just so we have them all uh, on the table, is uh, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, and fame and disrepute. Um, so most of you, um, you know, I, how many of you like the four, uh, the four unpleasant ones, right? You know? <laughs> so, our life is full of all of them. So if we live our lives trying to only have one set of them and pushing away the other ones, uh, we're in a constant struggle with what life really is like. So it's very important to develop a relationship with these uh, vicissitudes, these worldly winds, uh, that treats them like the weather. Sometimes it's raining, uh, sometimes it's sunny, sometimes it's really hot, uh, sometimes it's really windy. And so the same thing with these vicissitudes. They're just things that happen in life. And if we can have the same relationship um, as we sometimes have with the weather, <laughs> um, it can make our lives have a lot more ease. Um, so the first one is uh, pleasure and pain. For those of you who've been meditating for the last you know, 40 minutes or so, um, you've probably experienced both. And maybe more than once, right? You know, there's been uh, pleasure uh, of the body or mind, or pain of the body or mind. So if you're feeling restless, you know, that's pain of the mind. If you're feeling a discomfort, the low back's tight, the shoulder's tight, discomfort of the body. So just in any given 40 minutes, we experience pleasure and pain more than many times. Um, and then there's the bigger pleasures and pains, you know, we have, uh, uh, we go, we hear some wonderful music, uh, it's wonderful pleasure, and then right at the end of this, the symphony, somebody hits a really horrible note, you know, and ah, uh, it's ruined, you know, and so we, you know, can we see these things that happen with, it, with a heart of equanimity, of likeness, gain and loss, um, you know, gain is about getting what we want, right? You know, the things, what the things we want in life. Maybe we want friendships, relationships, family, career, wealth, uh, specific things, you know, we might want. You know, uh, we might want to develop a skill. We want to be a good musician or a good runner. So those are all things we can gain. And just as easily as we can gain those things, we can lose them. And so you get a new car and uh, come out of the house, and it's dented. Somebody hit it in the night. Or um, we had, um, you know, my husband and I worked on our garden really, really hard, and we were so proud of it. We had, we had all these great vegetables, you know. And then this is at the time of the Medfly. I don't know how many of you were in the Bay Area then. You know, and they came to a door and ripped it out. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like, oh my gosh, you know, such, a, such a loss, you know. Um, you know, we, we uh, enjoy our children and then they leave home. Uh, so mo- everything we gain, we lose. We gain, we lose. And as we age, we lose our abilities. And then eventually we lose everything. We lose our lives. And so this is part of what happens in life. It's not uh, special to us. It's really the way life is. And um, I think Suzuki Roshi said it really well. He said, um, life is going to see in a boat you know will sink. So, (laughs) (laughs) took a moment, huh? (laughs) It's it's sinked in. (laughs) Uh, So, praise and blame. One of our favorites, right? Uh, we all love to be praised and we don't like being blamed. Even for the little things, you know. Um, you overcooked the spaghetti or, you know, those, even those little things. You know, we don't like it. We don't like being blamed. Um, you know, blame can be uh, something we did, but it can also be undeserved. Have you ever been blamed for something you didn't do? Uh, so those things happen in life. We get praised, we get blamed. The Buddha said, and um, this is from the Dhammapada, and the fact that he even bothered to say this says a lot, Um, they find fault in one sitting silently. They find fault in one speaking much. They find fault in one speaking moderately. No one in this world is not found at fault. No person can be found who has been, is, or will be only criticized only praised. And so when we resist, you know, the, and struggle against what people think of us and, and what they say about us and, and um, how they criticize us, you know, this is just how it is. You know, some of you will enjoy the talk, some of you will be bored by it. That's just how it is. I've had... Um, I've had talks that I've given where people have come up to me and just told me what a great talk it was and how it affected them. And then somebody else who said that was, you know, uh, all I could hear was your umming, you know. <laughs> Couldn't hear anything else. And <laughs> um. <laughs> you know, I did not bring your attention to it. Uh. Praise and blame includes all the contortions we do with our egos. Um, becoming, if we become personally invested in being, pra- in being praised, we get really conceited. You know, oh, I'm so great. Um, you know, we can really puff ourselves up with praise. Um, and the other thing we do is we can praise or blame ourselves. You know, those voices in our minds that just, you know, we're sitting there having, uh, you know, having a dull meditation. Oh, I'm such a bad meditator. I've really messed up, you know. And uh, so we do that to ourselves quite as much as, other, maybe even more than other people do to us. And even when we get the things we like, the the success, a lot of success, you know, people get... Um, arrogant you know so oh, i'm so great i'm so much better than other people i'm so much smarter and you see that people get really puffed up with this stuff so praise and blame are the things that just happen in life and when we see them as just the winds of life the things that happen they come and they go and then we don't have to get caught up in them so it's not just that we don't like the bad things, but we can take the good things and grab onto them. That's how these, this happens, you know. Hey, I want to be praised. I really, I really got to give a good talk today because people have to like me, you know. I, you can really get caught up in this stuff, in this wanting uh, wanting to be praised. And, you know, fame and disrepute, you know, that's the, the fourth one. And... Um, you know, some people feel like, oh well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a known person, I'm not a famous person, you know, therefore, that doesn't apply. But really, um, uh, it was really, it, it was interesting when I did my CDL training, you know, Community Dharma Leader program. So it gathered a lot of people who were, uh, you know, learning to, um, you know. Uh, you know, bring the Dhamma to their communities. And so there were about 80 people who came and gathered in these little, like, week-long retreats. And they weren't just silent retreats. They were very social. uh, Because part of it was building community among us. And very quickly, what happened was high school all over again. (laughs) You know, it was the little cliques of the popular kids. (laughs) Um, You know, and then the little little outer groups, you know, that were... um, you know, the, the little rebel group that didn't quite fit there and all the, all the little little groups and all the really insecurities of people showed up. And it, But it was really interesting because uh, we created a safe space with which we could work with it, you know, and see that, oh, wow, it doesn't feel good, you know, not being popular, right? That's dukkha, that's pain. And being really comfortable with the fact that that's part of our healing, <sighs> Part of our process. One of the things we need to grow through. Um, so, being popular, having people like us, sometimes that's such a driving force that we do things in our lives that aren't good for us because we want to be liked, because we want to be, we want that popularity, that sense of belonging. And it, you know, and part of it, you know, it's a survival trend. It's a survival instinct to be liked, actually. Because in, in any tribe, they find, even in animals, they find that the alpha animals, the animals who have the more power in a tribe, have the least amount of stress hormones. So the more status, they did this study. They found um, they did this in England, I think, where they they looked at a corporation and they found that the people who had the most control in their lives, the most power had the least amount of stress hormones. Uh, it kind of went, you know, against some of this type A personality ideas. Um, I mean, some of that might be true too, but but there was definitely um, a sense of that. Uh, but but it's not really that that we have to belong, but we have to feel like we belong. That's really what it is. It's about how we are inside. I mean, some people like, um, for instance, there was, I um, uh, brought this up before, Tony Robbins was uh, um, in the 80s. He's a very popular international lecturer who uh, mentored some of the Fortune 500 in a kind of... Um, Uh, getting your life together type stuff you know really get counseling that way and he was talking about this uh, these two men you know one of them uh, had one of these companies and you know who made like you know eight million a year and then the other one who he was counseling only made six and a half million and he felt like a failure and he just had you know his whole reputation he was number two you know, and, I, and I've seen, I've heard gold medal um, uh, winners who next time got a bronze. Uh, they just failed. It was just a failure. And you know, you look at this incredible uh, uh, skill and accomplishment, yet that idea that you know they're not meeting the status, this ideal of how we should be. Uh, it was so damaging to themselves. Um, I actually um, knew knew someone who, um, he was a very um, well-known member in his community, and very successful businessman, had uh, very, very wealthy, and he got a little bit cocky, and he uh, put a whole bunch in the stock market, and lost 80% of what he had, and... um, but he still had quite a bit left over you know he still had a nice home you know he had a good job uh, he could support his family you know in the actual day to day life nothing much had changed but he was no longer this wealthy man who could you know give tons of money to charity and all this stuff and and he actually killed himself he was so humiliated by his loss by making this mistake uh, that he Went, did something so extreme. And how much do we do that to ourselves over smaller losses, where we blame ourselves, where we um, um, you know, don't value uh, how life is right now instead of how we want it to be? Um, there 's a real classic story that um, is often told about when we speak about the vicissitudes, and some of you have probably heard it, so, um, uh, so it 'll be familiar um, so it 's a story about a farmer um, in I think this was in china i don 't remember quite, quite where it was, you know a long time ago, and uh, at a time where there, was, uh, where there were wild horses. And his um, son came, one, came home one day with a wild horse he found. And he said, Dad, Dad, look what I found. Isn't this great? You know, and the neighbor came over, and they're celebrating the, the new horse. And, and the neighbor says, wow, you're so lucky. You know, and the farmer goes, maybe, yeah." And then, uh, you know, a few weeks go by and they're training the horse and, and you know, and the son's really proud of himself and, and he falls off the horse and breaks his leg. And so the neighbor comes over and he says, oh, such bad luck. You know, the, you, know, you, know you don't have anybody working in the fields and, um, you know, it's going to be so hard. And, you know, the farmer says, well, maybe... You know, and a few weeks later, um, you know, the soldiers come by and they're conscripting all the young men. And they come to his farm and they say, oh, where's your son? But he's got a broken leg, he can't go. And the neighbor comes over, of course, you're so lucky. (laughs) And he says, maybe, you know, is it luck, good luck, bad luck? Or is it the winds of uh, the worldly winds just coming by as they go? Um, I think Gil, uh, Gilda Radner. How many of you remember Gilda Radner? Oh yeah. Oh wow. Okay, good. Rosanna Dana, right? And she had a, a very wise saying she used to say. She said, "It's always something. If it, if it ain't one thing, it's another." And actually, somebody asked her to explain. And to explain further, and she said, well, you either got a toenail in your hamburger or toilet paper clinging to your shoe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Buddhist practice offers us... Um, in the face of these worldly winds, the development of equanimity, the quality of equanimity, um, it's a way of staying balanced regardless of what happens, whether our moment is pleasant or unpleasant. Um, so how, how many of you remember, I, I don't know, I think they reintroduced them, but it's a children's toy, they're called Weebles. Anybody know those? Okay, Weebles were these little kind of eggs you know, and uh, they're weighted in the bottom, so when you knock it over, you know they pop right back up. You know that's what the practice is like. If when we're doing it, right, we keep getting knocked over. You know, we we go on a trip, um, to, you know, to our next vacation. Whoops, back to the present. And come right back up, and and that's what the practice is. It brings us to a state of equanimity. Um, I like that image. It's it's uh, it works for me. <laughs> Um, equanimity is one of the most sublime, most beautiful emotions um, in Buddhist practice. It's, um, it's a presence of mind that's v- stable, clear, and rich, v- rich and warm, and, um, and it fills you. Now, some people think of equanimity as indifference, which is cold and aloof. Even though with equanimity you have a clear vision and you may not get all caught up in stuff, you're still very connected. Equanimity is of the body, heart, and mind. It's the whole thing. So you can't, you can't be equanimous and really equanimous and really be cut off from any part of yourself. So equanimity is a whole experience of our whole being. It's a very, uh, very beautiful thing to develop. And sometimes you get little glimpses of it in practice and sometimes it gets stronger as, we, as the practice continues. You know, in equanimity, if it's pleasant, you're fine. If it's unpleasant, you're fine. It just doesn't, it doesn't change. We're not dependent on those eight worldly winds to be in any particular way to be at peace with ourselves. And one of the things sometimes people, um, you know, think that you know, if you're then you're not going to do anything in life, you know, because you're okay, you can just sit there, right? And it doesn't mean that, you know, like for instance, let's say, um, uh, you know, there's some injustice going on in the world that you actually could do something about, you know, um, then then you might be out of equanimity. You can take action that's much more wise. I remember back in the 70s when I was involved with some activism, you know, so many people were just angry. They were just angry. And there was so little kindness. It's like, what are you talking about? Peace, you, you know, we're all... Uh, everybody's just so agitated, you know. So can we bring peace in, in any activism we do, in any changes we want to make? How do we do that? Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't mean that that's what you're supposed to do. It just means that we have the wisdom when we're quantumists to make better choices and to do them better. <clears throat> so meditation practice is a really important support for equanimity. Because as we practice, we really learn to develop the qualities that that uh, support equanimity. Every time we come back to the breath, we practice both letting go of whatever was distracting us or might distract us, and we practice concentration. The combination of letting go of our stories, of our ideas, of our concerns... Of, of all those things, and coming back, just that coming back, really strengthens a mind that's calm and stable. The more calm and stable the mind is, the more it fosters equanimity as a natural state. We can't force ourselves to be quantumous but we can incline ourselves to be quantumous We can lean in that direction. Um... When discomfort arises during meditation, every time we meet it, you know. I'd say you're sitting there. How many of you have sat here when the um, the blower goes outside? You know. Sometimes, uh, you know, right during morning meditation, there's like major blower, just the noise the entire time. You know, and um, I've had some fantastic sittings with that going on. You know, and so, so how do we meet unpleasant experience? You know, do we darken our minds and contract around them and wish it wasn't there? Or do we go, oh, that's unpleasant, and just allow that unpleasantness to be and, and allow ourselves to maintain a state of balance? So even if we can't do it in the moment, just by inclining in the direction of letting go of our upset about blower and a resistance to it and a aversion to it just by inclining the mind in that direction it begins to loosen that contraction in our hearts um, you know one of the things that I um, uh, there's a lot of emotions a lot of things that we don't want to have and for me one, you know I had this one really great experience on retreat Um, I was two weeks deep into a retreat. So everybody was really slow, really mindful. And we were at the food line, you know. And so we were getting, you know, or salad or entree. And everything's moving very, very peacefully, very, very slow. And, you know, I was like really in my body, feeling myself move one foot in front of another, you know. And as I got to the end, you know, filled my plate up, I very mindfully spilled all the dressing all over the floor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I remember, you know, I had been so quiet in my mind that I just saw the embarrassment rise up, you know, you know. But there was no resistance to it. And so the embarrassment just came like a flood, like a wave, and then it just went away. And it was so freeing to go, wow, it's okay to be embarrassed, You know, it's not going to kill me. (laughs) And, um, you know, and then just kind of the humor kicked in at that point, you know, and and it was pretty funny. And then I cleaned up, of course. Um, But um, that ability to be with the difficult emotions, the things we don't like about ourselves, the things we don't like about our experience, and really allow it to be there and meet it and and show up for it. One of the things... um, that I like to say about what the practice has done for me is it's gotten me comfortable being uncomfortable. So it's just a quality of, uh, it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay not to feel good. It's okay to have difficult emotions. But to show up for them, we don't have to resist them. another uh, personal experience of um, equanimity for me was um, in one of my early retreats um, I was uh, we were in the desert you know and we had um, I had lived in the desert so I thought I knew you know this part of the desert so I thought I knew what the weather was like and how to you know, how to pack for it. And um, it was a three-week retreat, and, and you know, and I always thought I was all prepared, but we got hit with really unseasonably cold weather, and I had no jacket. And then I got hit with a roommate that snored uh, at about 100 decibels. Um, and, um, and then just before the retreat, I had done some, uh, some heavy work, and my back was hurting. So here I was in the retreat and um, and, you know, and every time I'd go out it'd be like cold and, and uh, you know, couldn't sleep too well at night. But as the practice continued to settle in, I found myself in a state of just a deep, deep equanimity, a connection. I felt connected with the desert, connected with everyone there, connected with myself. And I was cold, couldn't sleep. My back hurt, and it was okay. You know, I had none of my stuff. I had everything I needed, and it was enough. You know, and that that experience of equanimity has informed my practice as as it's um, <clears throat> as it's continued to develop. Um, <clears throat> okay, so. There's a lot of things that support equanimity, but one of the things that, for myself, I found particularly important is the quality of kindness. Developing kindness towards ourselves and others, it can as a guiding principle in our lives, at the center of our lives. Um, The Dalai Lama said, "You know, my religion is kindness." He also said, "If I can be a little kinder every decade, I'm really happy." (laughs) Um, So even if we make a big mistake, you know, can we be kind to ourselves when we do it? Um, You know, can we treat ourselves like we would treat a child, you know, a child that we love? Can we be kind? Can we um, be compassionate towards ourselves? Um, And it's, you know... Sometimes people have trouble with the word kindness. It kind of sounds um, mushy or something. Um, You know, it's not some ideal of kindness, but it's just a very simple friendliness towards ourselves. How do we, again, how do we treat a child? How do we treat ourselves? How do we treat each other? Um, During meditation, you might consider what is the quality of kindness towards yourself when things take you away from the breath you know when you got distracted for five minutes you know thinking about some project at work and you're coming back to the breath is the quality of your mind kind towards yourself or are you oh, i flew it again you know that quality of kindness in whatever happens in our lives is is a really stabilizing factor for developing equanimity so I'd like to read a poem about kindness. Again, this is a famous poem, so many of you may have heard it, but I think um, I appreciate it each time I hear it. It's um, by uh, Naomi... I don't know how to pronounce her name. Ney? Nai nee? uh, Nye? N-Y-E. Um, so, <coughs> before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Um... You know, one of the things that have been a real privilege for me um, over the years is uh, that I've spent time uh, with friends and um, other people from the Sangha who um, uh, have been dying. They had either major illness or uh, they were dying. And one of the things that really just struck me is how each one of them uh, mentioned how grateful they were for their practice that they, had, they knew they had something to do no matter what happened. They knew what to bring to any moment, no matter how difficult. It's not that some moments weren't incredibly challenging and difficult and loss and, and all the human experiences, but they were able to meet it and to hold it and to touch it. Um, you know, it was very empowering, at a time when the final loss of life comes around. And so I want to end with a poem by a 14th century Zen monk, um, Ichigyo, Kozan Ichigyo. Empty-handed, I entered the world. Barefoot, I leave it. My coming my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. And that's the heart of equanimity. So, um, we have a little time, so if anybody has any comments, uh, if you want to talk about your worldly winds, or, yeah. um, <laughs> or one of your, your favorite worldly winds, <laughs> Uh, or have any questions? So I'd be happy to hear from you, uh, Bill. Uh, Did you pass the mic?
2: Well, if I may, two things. First, is could you repeat that last little quatrain or poem?
1: Sure. Empty handed, I enter the world. Barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled.
2: Thank you. Um, So I was reminded of something uh, by a story you told about being bugged by noises while meditating. once, a long time ago, uh, at a meditation hall, the woman in front of me, every 30 seconds, she would grab the velcro strap of the jacket, and <laughs> put it back. <laughs> and at first, I was very irritated. You know, how can she blah, 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 blah? And then I thought about it a little bit. And I realized, okay, she's got a lot of nervous energy. And that means it's a good thing that she was coming to this place. I mean, what am I supposed to wish, that she hadn't come here? So I realized it it was a good thing overall. And then I was happy.
1: (laughs) Great. (laughs) Great. Wonderful. Uh, Behind you? Over here.
0: My husband snores at at least 200 decimals. (laughs) And he's a senior sound engineer, to make it worse. But, um, you know, and it, oh, it just so, for many years, you know, when it would happen, especially when he's very tired, that, then it really hits. You know, and I, there was a lot of resentment about that, a lot of resentment. But, um, you know, since coming here and, you know, just looking at it differently, you know, when I am meditating and I do hear him snore now, I'm just so thankful that he's alive. <laughs> and that, it's, it's the most miraculous thing. Because if, when he starts snoring, you know, and I start getting into it and just thinking, you know, that I know he's alive and he's breathing and everything. And the moment I get to some space with that, he stops. It's like magic. <laughs>
1: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
3: Um, just, just to add my own comment or my own thoughts, I'm part of another program, uh, like an online community, Sea Change. I don't know if anyone's heard of it. There's monthly modules where, like, we we talk about we focus on one thing at a time for every month, like. January was mindfulness. Um, February was, uh, I don't know, fitness. This month is self-compassion. Um, so on the idea of self-compassion, uh, self-compassion, self-talk, uh, it's, been, it's been a big obstacle for me. And something I'm reminding myself is, you know, I treat my friends very well. I treat my friends very well. I treat um, my best friends very well. I treat my family well. But I don't always treat myself well. So when they make mistakes, I say, hey, it's okay. What did you learn from it? Let's just not let's let that not happen again. But to myself, it's, it's a lot harder. It's like, like it, it involves a lot of face palms and, and banging a table and forehead slapping and so a lot of a lot of bad words too or so that's just been something i've been overcoming and uh, this has been helpful just treat myself as if uh, i would to a child you said or my my best friend
1: okay you know one of the other things that can be helpful is humor and um, you know, my husband. I remember he um, he was. He said, you know, he wanted to make a machine. You know that you you pull it, and there's a boot on it, and it kicks you, kicks you in the butt, right? <laughs> and I think we actually found a cartoon of one. <laughs> so uh, so humor can really help with that. So when we do blame ourselves, when we are tough with ourselves, um, you know, we shouldn't judge that. Also, you know, it, it's easy to to keep, keep adding, adding to that so sometimes just lightening it up can really help so I'm going to model for you equanimity um, <laughs> and try to let go of self blame because I actually failed to uh, read a couple announcements when I was supposed to earlier <laughs> so without self blame Um, I shall tell you that uh, tomorrow is going to be an intro to mindfulness meditation with Shin Kwan Park, one of five, that's from 10 to 11.30. And next Sunday, there's Dharma Rocks, third to fifth grades, from five to seven, and Buddhism and 12-step support group with Jennifer Lemus from 7.30 to 9 p.m. Thank you. Okay, there's probably room for one more question or comment. Another next
0: hi there thank you Inez I've seen your name often in the uh, flyer and I've always wanted to hear you speak so very nice to do so today and um, as you were speaking about equanimity what came to mind for me were the um, words from Pema Chodron about to just stay just to stay with whatever it is and no comment necessarily not wanting to move away not wanting to fix it or wanting it to be different, just to really stay with it. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Um, so thank you. And, I, and did I hear you say there's a tea today? No, oh, no, no, no tea today. Okay. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> what? Cleaning. Oh, today's cleaning today. Okay. <laughs> it's got a couple of the same letters. Okay. <laughs> So thank you.